of Jesus Christ is a pride killer. Every single day we come and we're like, man, you look at the cross, you're like, man, I'm selfish. Yeah, Jesus died for that. Man, I'm self-centered. Yeah, Jesus died for that. See, God is doing a work trying to dislodge our obsession with ourselves. But it comes from asking the right questions. We have to be careful not to ask the wrong questions. Like, why were the former days better than these? It's the wrong question. Rather than saying, God, what are you doing right now? And how do you want to use me? Typically, a person in the ninth grade is going to have more knowledge than the one in fourth. That's how it works. You learn and grow. As believers, we need to seek out wisdom in others if we want to grow spiritually. If we're satisfied with a superficial understanding of God, we'll never fully know Him. Today, we'll hear about this and more keys from Scripture about how to live a better life. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Ecclesiastes with his continuing study entitled, Four Keys to a Better Life. Because true beauty is not just external. And everybody knows that. Because you meet someone who might be physically beautiful, but if their heart is rancid, over time you're like, yeah, they might be good looking by the world standards, but there's no beauty there. Because beauty isn't skin deep. So we have to do the dirty work of character work instead of being okay with a quick fix. And our culture sells the quick fix. In every single different area. Back in the day, you businessmen were taught you put on a good suit. The red tie was the power tie. And you put a suit on and you are powerful. You notice nobody talks about that anymore? Why? Because it doesn't work. Because being a powerful person has nothing to do with what your suit looks like. True power is a disposition of the heart. And the Power suit, power tie guy isn't powerful at all. Just a poser with a suit on. When we get that, verse 1 in, then verses 2, 3, and 4 start to make more sense. Because what he's saying is he's saying a good name is better than precious ointment. And then he says, the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. See, That sounds provocative and, may I even say, paradoxical, which, wait, if it's better to be sad than to be happy, the oppositions that are being played here is frivolousness versus depth. You read it on the surface, you're like, well, so you're saying I should be grumpy rather than I should be happy? When it speaks of laughter, when it speaks of the house of feasting, the house of mirth, it all speaks about being frivolous being ha-ha, hee-hee, slapstick, shallow. And so the idea for us is that if character trumps some sort of cover-up, then seeking a better life is about getting deeper than just the surface. And don't get me wrong, when you start to 
pray and seek God about the day of your death, that's going to make you deeper. When you come face to face with mortality, that changes the way we look at life, doesn't it? How are people going to speak of you at your memorial service? However you want them to speak of you, you need to start living now. See, most of us, we've bought into a a superficial culture. And because of it, we are an inch deep and a mile wide. When God really wants us to be a mile deep and an inch wide. And I believe God, as we seek what is better, I believe God wants to bring you and I to a place where we start becoming comfortable with the fact that this life is not all that there is. And we need to start building in a legacy that is long-term, that is much greater than however many days God gives us. This reminds me of Psalm, of course, chapter 90, verse 12, that says, so teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. It's the same concept. I'm not saying we shouldn't have times of superficial joy, but that should not be the content of our life, moving from one superficial activity to the next to the next. And we live in a culture, an entertainment culture, that is so frivolous. It's so insignificant, and we're so used to it that we don't realize that we've bought into a lack of depth. It's so easy to be on the surface. And all these verses are reminding us, listen, we need to get under the surface. We can't be just superficial. We need to get deep with our lives. We need to be honest about our human condition. We need to think deeply. See, one commentator said it this way. A sorrow shared may bring more inner happiness than an evening with backslapping jokers. That's kind of powerful, isn't it? Because when you and I get deep, now I say get deep, I don't mean get complicated. I mean, just be deeper than the surface things. Oftentimes, as we plumb the depths of our human existence, all of a sudden joys pop up that we would have never known. So we need to seek what is better. Now, look what happens in verse 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a man's reason and a bribe debases his heart. So the first key seek what is better. Second, learn from the wise. Learn from the wise. Because look at what it says. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. One of the things that you and I need is we need to learn from people who are wise. We need to give people the opportunity to speak into our lives and sometimes rebuke us, sometimes call into question who we are. I had someone say one time that I can tell everything about a person if you introduce me to their five closest friends. Because you and I are the sum total of our five closest friends. 
You can tell what someone's going to value. You're going to tell where their blind spots are going to be. And most of us, because we live in a superficial culture, we have a tendency to surround ourselves with only people who are going to affirm exactly what we are. Now, when you think about that, that doesn't sound so good, does it? That's actually kind of terrifying, isn't it? See, we need to learn from the wise. It's better to get the rebuke of the wise than the laughter of fools. And our Bibles are actually full of this. Maybe the most pronounced or profound is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There was a man, his name was David. He's a great king. David was blessed. He had a heart after God. But David got a little sideways. Instead of being out in battle with his men, he sent his generals. And he found himself one day on his, the roof of his, you know, out in his castles. And he saw a woman bathing. And instead of turning his eyes away, he spent time there. And then he invited her over to his palace, a woman named Bathsheba. Her husband, Uriah, was a warrior who was out fighting for the kingdom. Now, back in the day, when a king invited a woman to his castle, she didn't have much rights, just went along with it either way. And David seduced her and committed adultery with her, found out that she was pregnant, and David, trying to cover up his garbage, decided to invite Uriah back from the battle so that he'd go home and sleep with his wife. And then the, the child would be Uriah's, but Uriah was an honorable man. David invited him over, sent him home. Uriah slept in the courtyard. Who am I to go home and enjoy my wife when my comrades are out of battle? David's like, oh, it's not working. So he tried to get them all liquored up too. Didn't work. So David, he was, his hands were tied. So what did David do? He gave Uriah a note to give to his general saying, hey, I want you to put Uriah in the heat of the battle. He sent him on a suicide mission. And Uriah died. King David's like, okay, I'm, I'm okay. Sin covered. But you know your sin always finds you out. Because God spoke to a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan came, told David a little story about a guy who was rich who had flocks, and a, another guy who had one little ewe lamb that was like a family pet. And when the rich man's visitors came, he didn't want to kill his own flock, so he went and he took the little ewe lamb from the guy who loved that like a household pet, and he took it and he killed it, he gave it to his friends, and David got totally incensed, raining down judgment on this guy. And Nathan looked at David, and in the Hebrew said, David, you the man. You the man. This is about you. And David knew and he repented. Now, David was the king. He could have killed Nathan right there. You have all sorts of pages in your Bible about a powerful man hearing the rebuke from a prophet and persecuting him. But what did David do? He repented. He was willing to hear the rebuke of somebody who had wisdom, even though he was the top dog in Israel. Now, juxtapose David's ability to hear the rebuke with a man named Rehoboam, who was the son of King Solomon. Solomon may be the most profitable king in Israel, David's son, actually his second child with Bathsheba. After Solomon's reign was over, 
The, the kingdom went to Rehoboam, and Rehoboam went to Solomon's counselors and said, what should I do? And they said, listen, your father drove him really hard. You should back off, and they'll love you. And then Rehoboam went to his buddies and said, what should I do? These guys are telling me I should back off. And they said, no, no, no. You should go in there and tell them, look, you think my dad was hard? I'm 10 times as hard. I'm going to drive you harder. You know what happened? That kingdom got broken up. On that day, Rehoboam lost 10 of the 12 tribes. They all went with a man named Jeroboam. You often wonder what would have happened had Rehoboam listened to actual elders and wise people rather than his buddies. We need to learn from the wise. Brothers, sisters, each one of us, no matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been in Christ, we need to find opportunities for people to speak into our lives. And when someone who loves you, who loves Jesus, comes and says, look, I think you're really screwing this thing up, we should take heed and listen. Most often, we push away the very people who God sends to protect us. We need to learn from the wise. Because you know what the alternative is? The laughter of fools. People who want to diminish us to be exactly like they are. That's one of the keys to a better life. Not only to seek what is better, character, depth, but we do that by learning from the wisdom of other people. Let people speak into your life. Let people challenge you on things. I love when people challenge me on things. I always bring it to the Lord, like, Lord, okay, where am I wrong? Where is this right? Hey, so-and-so said this. What do you think, Lord? I bring it to people, like, when, when things with crossroads. Bring it to people on the executive team. I bring it to people on our board. I bring it to other people who are just here, like, hey, so, hey, what do you think about this? Why? Because I don't want to be blindsided by my own blind spots. And with our life, so funny when you talk to someone. I, I did a, a couple's retreat. And I'm like, hey, just so you guys know, I'm learning about how to be a husband every single day. Read books on what marriage looks like. I talk to people. I see someone with a good marriage. I'm like, so hey, what's the secret? What do you guys do? How does it work? Why? Because I need to learn from the wisdom of other people. We need to learn from the wise. Now, as we hit verse 7 and go forward, look at what it says here. It says, surely oppression destroys... A wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. So remember, the first key is to seek what is better. Second, we need to learn from the wise. Now, you need to ask the right questions. You need to ask the right questions. Now, By asking the right questions, you avoid what I would call the usual pitfalls. In verse 7, the pitfall of being oppressive. Look at what it says. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. 
So without asking the right questions, we may seek to oppress people in order to get what we want. Second, the pitfall of pride. In verse 8, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. That word patient means the persevering. One of the issues of pride is I want it all and I want it now. Right? And so a usual pitfall for you and I is the way of self-centered pride. It's all about me. I'm the most important. Sure, everyone has needs, but my needs take the top billing. It's a pitfall. You need to ask the right questions. Third danger, of course, is anger. It says in verse 9, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Man, that's a tough word, isn't it? Anger rests in the bosom of fools. It's like in the depths of your heart, in a fool's heart is anger. Anger is thinking that your anger actually accomplishes anything constructive at all. It doesn't at all. It's a fool's errand. And anger in the heart gives birth to all sorts of human calamities. It's one of the usual pitfalls. You get angry. You know I get angry because you don't ask the right questions. Trying to get things done in our own strength rather than in God's. Look at the next pitfall. In verse 10, do not say why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. <laughs> Romancing the past or sentimentality. Those of you who've taken more trips around the sun, that's a big thing, isn't it? We have a tendency to have selective memory of the past. The children of Israel did it. They forgot that they were enslaved. They just remembered the meat and the bread. It's so easy to look at the past and say, yesterday was so much better. <laughs> I mean, look at what he says. He's, he's, he's very direct. For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. One of the pitfalls, of course, is romancing the past. Having a skewed view of yesterday. And mostly it's because we're unfulfilled today. And notice, God's desire for you and I is that we be wise. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. See, when you ask the right questions, you're saying, God, I want your wisdom. I don't want my own wisdom. I don't want my own anger. Lord, I don't want my own skewed view of yesterday as if it was actually better than today or more important or more whatever. See, wisdom is being in the present moment with Jesus. And we rejoice in yesterday. And we say, God, this is where you have me today. And I trust you. The usual pitfall of pride. See, God's doing a work in all of us. The cross of Jesus Christ is a pride killer. Every single day we come and we're like, man. You look at the cross, you're like, man, I'm selfish. Yeah, Jesus died for that. Man, I'm self-centered. Yeah, Jesus died for that. 
See, God is doing a work trying to dislodge our obsession with ourselves. But it comes from asking the right questions. We have to be careful not to ask the wrong questions, like, why were the former days better than these? It's the wrong question. Rather than saying, God, what are you doing right now, and how do you want to use me? Lord, what's your plan for this day? And I'm game. What do you want? How many of us are missing what God is doing right now because it doesn't look the way it looked a week ago or a year ago or 20 or 30 years ago? God wants to use us right now, given the way the world is right now. That's the right question. We have to seek what is better. Beautiful, right? We have to make sure that we learn from the wise. We have to ask the right questions. And as we close, look at verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that a man can find out nothing that will come after him. Finally, we need to consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. He says, the fourth and maybe the most essential key to a better life is to consider what God has done. Notice, it says, for who can make straight what God has made crooked? Now, that's not a moral judgment, saying that if God created something crooked, then no human can make it straight no matter how hard we try. What has already happened, what God has done, no matter how much we don't like it, we can't undo it. God is God and we are not. And notice what it says. Because it not only says that, it says that in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. See, one of the keys, and maybe the most important key to a better life is realizing that God is God, and there will be times of prosperity and times of adversity. And one is actually not morally better than the other because God uses both of them. God has different plans in the different seasons of our life. And for you and I, it says this in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Brothers and sisters, listen. You will never lead a better life until you consider the ways of God and the works of God. Until you spend time saying, God, I want to understand that I don't understand. God, I want to learn to trust in your ways. Because your thoughts are higher than mine. They're better than mine. The things that go on, I don't get. And you know what? You don't tell me everything. But I'm willing to say in every moment, God, I'm going to learn to trust you. Jesus is I want to thank you so much for listening to Jesus at Israel Radio. It's exciting to me that you would take the time to listen to this. It is my distinct hope that each one of us would simply respond to Jesus. That's a big idea. 
for me, for Crossroads Community Church, and for Jesus' Real Radio, that each one of us would meet with Jesus, what I like to say, at street level, because Jesus is right where you are. He is right there in the middle of your situation and in the middle of your circumstances. Jesus is right there, and Jesus wants each one of us to learn how to simply respond to him. What that means is that at every moment, Jesus prompts us and we take that step. And it's my hope for you as you're listening to this program that you would find yourself each day simply responding to Jesus more and more. You'll become more loving, more kind, more gracious, more generous, not just financially, but in every single area of your life. You'd find yourself desiring to serve others and not just hoping that everyone is there to serve you. When we simply respond to Jesus, we become closer and closer and closer to who God created us to be. And so we say that Jesus is real, and He is, and He exists right where you are, and He is inviting you to partner with Him in recreating the world. So Jesus wants to change the world, and He is looking for available people, people like you and like me. So please, as you listen, simply respond to Jesus and engage yourself in the work of God's kingdom in your community and your world. God bless you so much.